Well, we are in a series in the Gospel of Mark called Servant King, and uh, we are w- working our way through uh, this entire book. We're about halfway, and it's at this halfway point. If you remember, I, I shared with you that Jesus has turned his attention towards the cross. He's, he's focused on going to Jerusalem, and so the entire half, second half of the Gospel of Mark kind of focuses on that. You see that that's where Jesus' attention is. And much to the chagrin of the disciples, Jesus is not going to start, um, you know, he's not going to, he's not going to kick the Roman occupiers out of Israel. That's what the disciples expect. That's what the disciples want him to do, but he's not really going to do that. He's not going to, he's not going to start an uprising against the Roman Caesar. He's not the catalyst for a new political movement in the Middle East. What Jesus intends to do is go to the cross and die and three days later rise. And so Jesus realizes that he, his, his time is about to come and so he's training his disciples getting them ready to take over when he ascends into heaven and so he calls them to take up his cross to take up their cross and follow him and then he introduces them to a new paradigm of leadership and this new paradigm of leadership is called servant leadership and so Jesus knows that everything rises and falls on leadership and so he calls them to this model of what it means to be servant leaders. And so Jesus knows that a nation without wise leadership is in trouble. Jesus knows that a community without wise leadership is in trouble. Jesus knows that a family and a marriage without wise leadership is in trouble. And Jesus also knows that a church lacking in wise leadership is in trouble. And and so And I would just say, just kind of parenthetically, uh, that I think the biggest problem that our country is facing today is a lack of wise, godly leadership. Can I get an amen to that? You you know what I'm saying? Like, Like today, we don't really know the difference between celebrities and leaders. We often confuse that, right? You know, celebrity, you know the difference between celebrities and leaders? Celebrities are just famous for being famous. They they really don't do anything. Now, they may volunteer here and there or give a little money, but, but really... Celebrities are just about themselves. They're just self-absorbed. But, but really, when you, when you look at authentic leaders, they do something for somebody else. They serve uh, other people. So there's a huge difference. And we're, in our culture, we just confuse the two. And, and then secondly, I think we're suffering from a huge shortage of good leaders. You, th- you, th- you think about the realm of politics. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get political here, so just hang on. Um, you, you know, you think about... There is one thing Republicans and Democrats have in common. They have bipartisan, unanimous agreement over this. And that one thing is, they're going to do what's in the best interest of them. That's the bottom line. They're going to line their pockets. They're going to preserve their power. And, uh, and so Republicans and Democrats across the board. I think that's the problem today. We have a real crisis of leadership in our society today. And so that's why we see problem after problem go unsolved, go unsolved, because Everybody's just looking out for themselves. And so, so that's a huge issue. So then the question becomes, well, what is leadership? And uh, I, I think a lot of us think leadership is position. We, we think, you know, you, you have this position and you're a leader. Well, that, that's not necessarily true. You can have all kinds of positions and not be a leader. You probably work for a boss who's a very poor leader, right? And uh, so just because you have the position doesn't mean you are 
uh, a leader. It doesn't mean uh, leadership is not really a title. You can be president, you can be CEO, you can be supervisor, you can be, you know, head dog catcher, wh whatever it is, you know, and, and that, that's not leadership. A lot of people think leadership is public speaking. People say, well, I'm not a public speaker, so therefore I'm not a leader. That, that's not leadership. So the classic definition of, of leadership is this. Leadership's just simply influence. It's just influence. And, and the bottom line is, you, you may not think that you're a leader, but you really are. All of you are leaders. Because the issue is not whether or not you're a leader. The issue is what kind of influence are you having? Are you a good leader or are you a lousy one? Are you intentional or are you unintentional? Now you say, well, Scott, I don't really have that much influence. You have all kinds of influence because think about the people that you interact with every single day. You interact with your family members, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. You have influence every time you have an interaction with them. You're influencing them either for good or for bad. And so in that sense, every single one of us are leaders. It has nothing to do with charisma, has nothing to do with position, has nothing to do with title, has nothing to do with standing up and giving, giving a speech. Every time you send a text, every time you email, every time you post something, every time you say something, you're influencing for good or for bad. The real issue is, are you, are you an influencer for Jesus? That's the question. I mean, as Christ followers, we should get up every day thinking, I want to be an influence for Jesus today. What a very, what a, what a godly goal that is. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where Jesus teaches the disciples some important lessons. And, uh, and uh, we're going to see the kind of person God uses. We're going to see what, uh, what, where godly influence really comes from. This is not a very long passage that we're going to read, but man, is it chock full. So we're going to read uh, chapter Mark verses, the gospel of Mark chapter 9, verses 35 through 41. And, and I'm going to ask if you're willing and able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word today. So we'll start at verse 35. We, we, we talked a little bit about this two weeks ago. He says this, and he sat down. And he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not, not me, but him who sent me. And then verse 38. And John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for the one who does a mighty work in my name, for, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ Will, but will by no means lose his reward. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. So Jesus is talking about greatness, and he says, really, greatness is not about what we're able to accomplish, but it's, it's really about your willingness to serve. Greatness is in the kingdom of God. God's, God's view of greatness is about who you're willing to serve. It's about having a servant's heart. So then right after that, 
there's this incident with the disciples where they see this guy casting out demons. And, and so the disciples are wondering, did they overstep their bounds? Did they kind of, you know, kind of uh, assume too much authority, if you will, by, by telling the man to stop? And so they get Jesus' opinion about, about this incident. And I think from this incident, really from this passage, we, we, we see some characteristics of the kind of person God can use. The kind of person that, that, uh, that has influence in the lives of other people. So let's look at this. Let's look at the first one. And, and, and I, I kind of worded it this way, that God uses people who embrace a servant identity. He uses people who embrace a servant identity. Let me show it to you in verse 35. Jesus uh, sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. So two weeks ago, we talked about this passage in depth. And if you remember, the disciples were constantly bickering over who was the greatest. They, were, they had bought into the world's definition of greatness. Their thought was that greatness is really about your status in society. It's about your accomplishments it's about your achievements, it's about your position, and then your resulting affluence in that way. And then Jesus comes in verse 35, and he flips that over, and he, and he redefines greatness, and he really redefines influence, and says, you know, greatness and influence are really not determined by your social status, it's not determined by all the great things that you do and all the great things that you know, uh, it, it's really not about that greatness is not about who serves you so we think jeff bezos and bill gates you know these guys have people serving them all the time well that's not greatness in the eyes of god it's not about who serves you it's about who you're serving and the difference that you're making in their life jesus says that the kingdom kingdom greatness is about having a servant's heart that's what jesus point in verse 35 now the implication of what he's saying in verse 35 is that the more that you serve the greater you become in other words the more that you and I are willing to serve and embrace the servant's identity the more influence that we're going to have in the people around us I, I think about some of you have heard the name mother Teresa she she died a few years ago but she was a short Albanian nun and uh, she lived in poverty and she she ministered to the dying in Calcutta, India. That was Mother Teresa. That she devoted her life to people that you've never heard of, that you've never met, you've never seen their post on social media, but she ministered to them as they were dying, as they stepped into eternity, and she devoted her life to them. What's interesting about Mother Teresa is this short Albanian nun, whenever she spoke, people listened world leaders gave her their undivided attention. Do you want to know why? Because she served God and she served people. That's why. And it was clear as bell. She was so different. She was so, uh, she was cut from such a different cloth that when she spoke, people listened. Because she genuinely loved God and she genuinely loved people. Jesus says, that's kingdom greatness. And if you want to be the person that God uses, you'll embrace that servant identity as well. That is greatness, according to Jesus. 
in the kingdom of God. Now Jesus presses this. He takes it to a different level. He doubles down on it in verse 37. He says this, and he took a child and he, he put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And Jesus makes the point more clear. He, he uses this child as an illustration. He picks up this child. And children in the Middle East were the lowest rung of society. They had absolutely no rights. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago as well. And basically, he's holding an example of the least, the lost, and the last of our society. He was holding an example of what the world says, that's the least, that's the lost, that's the last, that's worthless in our society. And Jesus says, if you embrace one such person, you embrace me. You, you serve that person, you serve me. You receive the least, the lost, and the last, you receive me. And not only me, but you receive the one who sent me, the creator of the universe. Now, why is that true? Because Jesus came to identify with the least, the lost, and the last. He came to die for the least, the lost, and the last. Which is not just children, but really all of us. He identifies with us. And in that, he identifies as a servant. And so Jesus is really calling his disciples to servant leadership, to embrace an identity of what it means to be a servant of God. Let me show it to you from the Apostle Paul. This is Ephesians 2.10. This is Paul picking up on this theme. And uh, he says this, for we, for we are God's, for we are his workmanship. Now, I want you to notice that phrase, that, that word workmanship. That's the Greek word poema. And this is something I've talked about in the past, but, but that word workmanship in Greek is the Greek word poema, and it simply means poem. You are God's poem, Paul says. And what he's saying is you are God's work of art. You are, you are, you are literally the work of art of God. You're God's poem. He wrote a poem and that poem is you. And you know the purpose of art? Like if I, had a, if I had a painting that I painted or a sculpture that I had sculpted and I brought it up here, you know, what's the purpose of that? Well, I think you would laugh because I don't have a lot of artistic ability, but, but that's not really the purpose. You know, the purpose. you know what the purpose of art is? To, to reflect everything good, beautiful, and true. That's what art does. Anything good, beautiful, and true. Art conveys that, communicates that. So think about it this way. You are to reflect everything good, beautiful, and true. There's another word for everything good, beautiful, true. You know what it is? Glory. God's glory. Because everything good, beautiful, and true is sourced in God because he is the perfect expression of goodness, beauty, and truth. So you know what you are, church? You are literally the work of God created to display his glory. That's what Paul is saying in that very first phrase. But notice what he says, for you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. How are we to reflect this glory? Like tangibly, practically, 8 o'clock on Monday morning, how do I do this? 
He says through good works, through works of service, embracing that servant identity. That's really your purpose in life. He created, he created you for that. You know why I think so many people are struggling with suicidal thoughts and uh, just mental illness, drug and alcohol abuse? You know why so many people in America are struggling with that? Because we've divorced, we've divorced our purpose from life. And people are trying to figure out what their purpose in life is and they can't figure it out. When we're really created in Christ Jesus to be his work of art, to do good works. Now, when did God, when did God come up with this idea that we would be born to do good works? Well, he says God prepared it beforehand that we should walk in them. So like before you were even born, this was, God came up with this idea. I'm gonna create, I'm gonna create image bearers and they're gonna display everything good, beautiful and true. Church, that's your purpose. Your purpose is to reflect the glory of God. And we do it through service. And uh, that's exactly why God planned your life. For you to give it away. And to do it for his glory. Let me show you one more verse. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. This is, this is kind of the parting shot of 1 Corinthians. This is a good one. He says this. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, he says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You know what the work of the Lord is? Serving. It's ministry. He says, be overflowing in the service of God every day. Be abounding in that, knowing that, the, that, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So everything you do out of love and obedience, out of, out of faith, everything that you do, it, is, it always matters. It's never wasted. So you serve in children's ministry and you change the poopiest diaper you have ever seen in there. You change, you know, the smelliest diaper you've ever seen. What he's saying is this, it's never without value. It has tremendous value. Even if nobody in there smells it but you. You, you know what I'm saying? Because God sees it and God remembers it. Even if no one thanks you for it or no one recognizes you for it because God sees it and he promises he will recognize you for it. You serve on the hospitality or the greeter team. Do you know, do you know church, every single one of you serve on the hospitality greeting team? Did you know that? I mean, we have teams of people to do it, but really all of us serve on that. And it's just fascinating to me because I, I don't know if you realize this, but a, a lot of people, when they come into church, they, they're feeling like I don't belong here. They, they feel like, you know, I've done some things last week, man. If they only found out, man, they would boot me out of the church. Or they're like, they're walking in the door. And they think, I just don't know enough of the Bible. And if somebody figures that out, I'm out of here. You know, I'm just like, you know, I just don't know it. I don't know it that well. And people are coming to church. They're walking through the doors. And you don't hear these thoughts. But these thoughts are, are percolating in, inside every, every person. And then you smile and welcome them. You go up and introduce yourself and say, hi, you know, my name's Scott. How long have you been going here, you know? And you know what happens? They just relax. Because they say, man, this place is safe. I'm safe here. See, that kind of service never goes wasted. Never goes wasted. You know, you, you help a child, you help a third grader understand Jesus loves them and died for them. 
You're planting a seed that will change their lives forever. It never goes wasted, church. And, uh, and so whatever you do, uh, when you do it for the Lord, it always counts. And God uses people who embrace this who embrace the servant identity. They get what's going on and they're partnering with God and what he's doing in the world today. Richard Halverson is the former pastor. He was the chaplain of the United States Senate for the longest time. He would, he would close out every single service that he presided over or preached in. He, he would close it out this way. He would say this. He said, wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. God has a purpose in your being right where you are. Christ, who indwells in you by the power of his spirit, wants to do something in and through you. Believe this and go in his grace, his love, and his power in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. He got it, church. And he challenges you and me to to get it as well. God uses people who embrace a servant identity. But number two, God uses people who maintain a kingdom unity. He uses people who maintain a kingdom unity. Now, let me show you this because this is, this is fascinating. I've been kind of living with this over the past week and a half and uh, I want to show it to you. Uh, verse 38 again, he says, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, the disciples have this incident where they run into this, we'll call him the independent exorcist, okay? That, that's what we'll call him. Because we don't know his name. We don't, we don't know who he is. But they, they see this guy ministering in the distance, and he's casting out demons. And he's doing it under the banner of Jesus' name. He's doing it in the authority of Jesus. He's not swindling anybody. He's not pretending to be somebody that he's not. He, he's not, I mean, he's just ministering. And, and the kingdom of God is advancing. So naturally, you know, what the, you know what the disciples do? Yeah, they shut it down. They're like, oh man, you got to shut this whole thing down. And they, you know, they have their attorneys draw up a cease and desist letter and they get that thing delivered to this guy. They absolutely shut him down. You can't cast out demons anymore. And look at the reason why, verse 38. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. He's not one of us. He's not part of our little group. So therefore, you got to stop. You need to cut it out. You're not an insider. You're an outsider, so you need to stop. We're the only ones authorized to do this. Follow their logic, church. Because you're not one of us, we can't be one with you. That's what they're saying. And they're causing disunity. Now, unfortunately, this is how many Christians approach the issue of unity in the church today we think christian unity is having agreement over personal preferences you guys know what i'm saying you go to our church you know you have our convictions you have our methodology uh another way to put it you know if you have the same view of the end times you know, if you have the same preference of worship styles, if you vote for the same political candidates, then we're united with Christ. That's the litmus test for unity, our own personal preferences. I, I heard about a story of this traveler who was walking across this bridge, and 
this traveler looks over and he sees this guy standing on the railing of this bridge. And he realizes this guy's getting ready to jump 200 feet to his death. And so he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't, don't, don't jump, don't, don't move. You know, you know, what are you doing? And, and the, the guy standing on the railing said, said uh, you know, I just can't take it anymore. I just can't do it anymore. He said, well, wait, 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 let me, let me just talk to you for a minute. He said, there's so much to live for. He said, you know, you, you just got to think about that. And the guy standing on the railing said, said uh, well, like what? And the guy said, well, uh, he kind of thought for a minute and said, uh, well, are you religious or atheist? And the guy on the railing said, well, I'm religious. And he goes, well, I am too. I, I'm religious too. And uh, he said, now, now, wait a minute. Are you, are, you, are you Jewish or are you Christian? He said, well, I'm a, you know, the guy on the railing said, I'm a Christian. And uh, the traveler said, well, I, I'm a Christian too. Isn't that great? I mean, we have, we have so much in common. And, and, uh, and, and so the traveler asked him, well, are you Protestant or are you Catholic? And he said, well, uh, the guy on the railing said, well, I'm Protestant. And the guy said, well, I'm Protestant too. That's so great. And uh, he said, well, um, are you Episcopalian or are you Baptist? And the guy said, well, I'm Baptist. And, uh, and the guy, you know, the traveler said, well, I'm Baptist too. Isn't that awesome? We've got so much comedy. He said, well, let me just ask you. Now, are you Baptist Church of God or are you Baptist Church of the Lord Jesus Christ? And the guy, and the guy standing on the rail said, well, I'm Baptist Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I am too. Isn't that great? I mean, we have so much in common. And he said, well, let me ask you one more question. Are you uh, original Baptist Church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you Reformed uh, Baptist Church of the Lord Jesus Christ? He said, well, I'm the original Baptist Church. Well, good, I, I am too, I am too. And he said, let me ask you one more question. He said, now, are you original Baptist Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, 1850? Or are you original Baptist Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, 1950? He said, well, I, I'm 1950, 1950. And the traveler just pushed him off and said, die, you heretic scum. Man, it took a while to get through that joke there. For, <laughs> whew. So, isn't it true, church, that we divide over the dumbest things? Now, I'm not talking about orthodoxy and historic Christianity, because that will, that needs to divide. If people reject the Word of God, that's a dividing line. But historically, church, we don't have a great trick record track record of this and uh, we have divided throughout church history over the dumbest things can I show you an example from scripture the Corinthians did this they majored in cliques and divisions uh, it's just heartbreaking but let me let me read to you first Corinthians chapter 1 verses 10 through 12 he says I, I appeal to you brothers by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree that there may be no divisions among you but you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment where it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there was there's been quarreling among you my brothers and what I mean is that each each one of you says well I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and I, I follow Cephas or Peter or I I follow Christ can, can you see what's what he's talking about here this is the dumbest thing yet people in the Corinthian church aligning behind their their teachers and and they were getting their own value and worth based on who their particular favorite teacher was. And, there's, you know, some of them were like, well, I, you know, I'm in Peter's Sunday school class or small group, you know, look at me. And the other, other guy was like, well, you know, I'm taking apologetics. And, uh, and then others were saying, well, you know, Paul baptized me. 
And uh, people are like, well, I follow Jesus. You know what I mean? So that's just it. So, so that's what these Corinthians were doing. Uh, that the kind of person, church, that God uses understands that unity is not about personal preferences. It's, it's, it's not even about our non-essential opinions. Unity comes from our connection to Christ. That's unity. And so... The disciples, you know, they see this guy casting out demons and they said, you know, we just shut that down in a minute. Uh, Lord, did we do the right thing? And, and so Jesus says in verse 39, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me for the one who is not against us is for us. And the principle that Jesus gives there is, look, if they're, not, if they're not working against us, then they're for what we're doing. They're for us. And, uh, and the basis of that is this. They carry the name of Jesus. He was ministering in the name of Jesus. And so this independent exorcist was doing it under the banner of Jesus. What Jesus is saying is there's two kinds of people in the world, those for me and those against me. And so, so it really doesn't matter if you hold the King James Version only or not King James Version only. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, you're pre-millennialist or you're post-millennialist. And you're like, Scott, what does that even mean? Well, pre-millennialist and post-millennialist are views of the end times, both based on Scripture, but they're just differing views. I'm a pan-millennialist. It all pans out in the end, you know what I mean? It doesn't matter if you think worship leaders should wear skinny jeans and a t-shirt or a three-piece suit. It doesn't really matter about that. What matters is do you love Jesus? Is, are you connected to, to Jesus? And we see this in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 2 through 5 uh, where Paul encourages the, the Christians in Ephesus to maintain unity. Notice what he says. He says this, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace there's one body one spirit just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of christ's gift and so what he's saying is he's saying we need to be about as the body of christ maintaining unity in in the body of Christ now how do we how do we do this let, let me share with let me share with you just three practical ways I, I'm praying that this will be helpful to you uh, as we think about this and and again we're talking about the kind of person God uses right we're talking about that person cultivates unity the first thing I would say is this realize that unity is a gift of the Holy Spirit notice what he says in Ephesians Chapter 4, verse 3, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we don't create unity. The Holy Spirit creates unity. We just protect it and cultivate it and maintain it. So realize where true unity comes. It comes from the grace of God working in our hearts to bring us to the Son of God. And that's the source of our unity. Second, I would say this. That if God's going to use you, you've got to focus on what we have in common. Let me show it to you in verse 4. Paul says there's one body, 
one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Grace given to each one. So really that Greek word, one, you could put the word same in there. Same Lord, same faith, same hope, same baptism, same grace that was given to all of us. So, so what that means is they're going to, we're going to have different backgrounds. We're going to have different personalities. We're going to come from different cultures. We're going to have different races, different preferences. But God wants us to value and enjoy the differences, not just tolerate them. I mean, when the world says we need to tolerate each other, how many of you raise your hand? You want to be tolerated? Does that sound fun? No, God calls us to love one another. And, uh, and so God wants unity in the body of Christ, not uniformity. And, uh, and so oftentimes conflict, division in his church is when we, we focus so much on disputable matters. It's like we elevate them uh, to, to a height, to an importance that really doesn't even matter. I, w- when I was in seminary, I, I had the opportunity to spend a month in Israel. And um, there, was a, there was a church in Jerusalem called Christ Church Episcopal Church. And um, during the worship time, there were, church, it was, it was the most beautiful thing. There were Christians from all over the world. There were African Christians there. There were American Christians there. There were, there were Indian Christians there. There were Palestinian Christians there. There were completed Jews there. And, and you know who they were worshiping? They were worshiping our one Lord, Jesus Christ. It's the most beautiful thing because it was a picture of heaven. And so there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. Third thing that I would say is this. So we... We need to know that the source of unity is the Spirit. We need to focus on our, on our commonality uh, in, in, in Christ. Uh, but third, I would say we need to be realistic in our expectations. We need to be realistic in our expect- expectations. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 7, he says this, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Notice this. Grace has been given to each one of us. Now, do you know what grace is? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So every one of us have received the grace of God. We've received the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, a gift that we don't deserve because we've sinned against God. And and so what happens in the church, now follow me on this, this is so important, is you begin to discover what the Bible says that fellowship in the church should really be like. You begin to understand the purpose of the church and you see God's ideal for the church and then you begin to experience the real. And you notice there's a gap between the ideal and the real. You notice, you, you begin to discover that people fall short of the ideal. And then that can trip you up if you're not careful. And so when you see people fall short of the ideal, you know what you need to do? Love them anyway. And if they're falling short, you may need to go talk to them, actually. And so God uses people who are realistic about the progress that we still need to make in Christ. That God has started a work in you, he started a work in me, but the truth is he's not done with that work. So that means we're not to the ideal yet. We're not a perfect church. 
we're going to fall short. And church, listen to me. People are going to disappoint you. People here will disappoint you. And you know what you do? You love them anyway. That's what you do. That's what Jesus does. Other people will disappoint you and let you down. That's not a reason to break fellowship. It's really not. Church, you need to understand it is a tactic of the enemy to get your expectations so high that there's nowhere to go but down. And the enemy does that so that you'll be disillusioned so that he can get you out of the church where he wants you to be. He wants you to be in isolation. Because if you're in isolation as a Christian, he can destroy you. There's safety in numbers. Now, I understand that uh, some people are disillusioned and they have understandable reasons. They've been hurt. There's conflict. There's pettiness. There's hypocrisy. There's a lack of love. There's all of that. But but understand this. If Jesus hasn't given up on us, if he hasn't divorced us, we should neither. If anybody has reason to divorce the bride of Christ, it's Jesus. We've been unfaithful to him. But you know what? He stays. He loves. And he's working to complete the work that he has started in us. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor during World War II. He was martyred because he resisted the Nazis. He wrote a, he wrote a classic book called Life Together And it's about community in the church. It's about how the church really should love one another. And and what he says in that book is he makes the argument that that basically that, that, you know, disillusionment with the local church is actually a good thing. Because what disillusionment does is it shatters our expectations of perfection. And once those, once those expectations, those false expectations of perfections are shattered, then guess what we get to do at that point? We actually get to move in love for each other because we see what's real and then we love anyway. Now, I'm not talking about, he's not talking about excusing sin, sin that needs to be dealt with. Okay, we're not talking about that. Uh, but I am talking about letting go of this image of perfection that you, you kind of feel like everybody else has to live up to. And what Bonhoeffer says is as soon as this image is shattered, then we can freely admit we need grace too because we're broken sinners as well. Does that make sense? And uh, God uses people who sees we're really great sinners, but we serve a greater Savior. Can I get an amen to that? That's who God uses. And then lastly, let me close with this. God uses people who have a Jesus first priority. Now I wanted to, I want to come back to this because I think I think verse 38, there's another level going on here. So I want to just highlight it uh, just quickly for you. Um, you know, John says, you know, we tried to stop him, this independent exorcist, from casting out demons because he wasn't following us. You would have expected him to say, you know, we stopped him because he was not following you, Jesus. But he says, no, we stopped it because they wasn't following us. It's kind of like he's, he, he's elevating their level of importance. It's almost like they're superior and he's inferior. So we stopped him because, because it, you know, we're really better than him. It's, it's actually a form of spiritual pride. I mean, just think about this, church. People were being set free from the bondage of the enemy. The kingdom of God was advancing in the kingdom of darkness. And the disciples shut it down because they thought they were better than this guy. 
Do you know the kind of person God uses? Is the person who knows it's not about me. It's not about my position. It's not about what I do. It's not about my accomplishment. It's, it's about what Jesus accomplished for us. In fact, what is fascinating, and I, I found this in the commentaries about, about this passage. It's really interesting because if you read a little bit earlier in chapter 9 of Mark's gospel, the disciples tried to cast out demons and they couldn't do it. They didn't have the power to do it. And yet this guy's having ministry success. Could it be that the disciples were experiencing some ministry envy? That he was doing something they couldn't do. God was blessing his ministry and not really blessing their ministry as much. I think that could be certainly in play. And what that tells me is God uses people who trust God with the results, the fruit of their service and ministry to the king and to the Lord. See, our service, church, listen to me. Our, church, our service and ministry, it's not about us. It's really not. You know, when I was a younger pastor, uh, I, I used to, to kind of get caught up in the trappings of ministry success. I used to kind of seek that out because I thought it would be a way that I could prove and validate my worth and my value as a person as, you know, if we had ministry success. And, uh, you know, God in his grace worked in my heart and continues to work in my heart to show me, you know what, I, I don't have to prove my worth and value. That, that's already been established before the foundation of the world. And the truth is, I'm just a worker in a field. I plant the seed, but in reality, God's what, God is what makes it grow. I'm just, my story of service is a small part of a larger story, the story of the gospel, the story of, you know, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. I have a God in his grace lets me play a little role in that every single day. And the results, praise God, are not on me. They're on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So, so what this means, and what Jesus tells us in verse, 40, verse 41, is he reminds us, that every act of service is significant. There's no insiders and outsiders. There's no us and them. There's no, well, I'm better than you. Every, everything done for the glory of God is important in the eyes of God. Let me, let me show it to you, verse 41, and we'll close with this, I promise. Uh, he says this, for truly I say to you, Jesus says, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, he's just using a cup of water as an illustration. He's just saying, look, if you do the smallest act of service, the humblest act, and you do it because you belong to me, you will not lose your reward. And what he's saying is this, there no, there's no trivial and insignificant ministry in the body of Christ. You know, the ministry of preaching is just as important as the ministry of serving in the nursery. The ground's level. Because you know what? It's all done for the glory of God and out of obedience to him. And uh, he says, you know what? You're not going to lose your reward. So there'll, hopefully there'll be a lot of things, a lot of ways that you serve this week that no one ever sees. But I promise you this, God will see it. And Jesus says you will no way lose your reward. Now, 
what's the reward? Is it an extra crown? Get some gold, you know, get to build your mansion on a foundation of gold, you know what I mean? You're like, I'll take a slab, but I don't want the concrete, I want the gold slab, you know what I mean? That's, you know, when you build your house. The reward is Jesus. It's him. Because you'll stand before him, and you know what he'll say? Well done, good and faithful servant. We crave the opinion of other people. You know why? We crave the approval of other people because we used to have the perfect approval of God. One day we'll stand before him and he will smile over us because of his grace, because of his mercy. And he'll say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. We love him. We serve him because he loved us and served us by going to the cross. That's why we do what we do. And it's our greatest joy. Let's pray. God, we give you praise and honor. And we ask that you would use us this week. We would be intentional leaders that we would use the influence you have given us for your glory. That everywhere we go, whether we're going to work or taking care of kids or going to school, we're staying home, we're working out, whatever we're doing, God, I pray that we would see that we have the opportunity to influence others for you. And so, God, I ask that you would anoint us for that. You would give us a vision for that. You would use us in that. That we would be servant leaders in a world that's desperate, desperate for wise, godly leadership. And so we thank you. We love you. Thank you for serving us. Thank you for laying down your life for us. May we return it back to others and to you, God. So use us today, and we pray this in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen.